Miserere nostri Domine, Miserere nostri, Miserere nostri Domine, Miserere nostri, Miserere nostri Domine, Miserere nostri. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. A mission is very much a taking seriously of what we hear on the very first day of Lent, on Ash Wednesday. When before we receive the ashes on our foreheads, we hear the words of St. Paul, which says, Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. A time of mission is a moment of grace. Not a moment that comes tomorrow, but a moment that confronts us now, today. And in this now where the Lord extends his grace before us, we gather. We gather as sinners in need of salvation. We gather as those with possibilities that still await us. We gather as those who long to open our hearts for the Lord. And so let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to meet this moment of grace. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do. Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Kyrie eleison. Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, great God, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may, through the intercession of the Holy Virgin Mary, by his passion and his cross, be brought to the glory of his resurrection. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Please remain standing. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. A 
Jesus and his disciples set out for the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Along the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They said in reply, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter said to him in reply, You are the Christ. And then he warned them not to tell anyone about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. He spoke this openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. At this he turned around and, looking at his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and that of the gospel will save it. The Gospel of the Lord. As I was beginning the proclamation of the gospel, this guy, right here, hanging out with mom, this guy did something. I saw you. Don't worry, you're not in trouble. Come with me. Come with me. So we're going to bring you right up front, young man. Turn around. Don't worry about these guys, they only look scary. (laughs) But as we were beginning the gospel reading, and I announced the gospel, you took your hand and you did something, didn't you? And you marked yourself where? And where else? And where else? Very good. Very good. That's the easiest applause you will ever get. And... So did they. So you weren't the only one, but I noticed you. You can go back to mom. I'll catch you again in a minute. (laughs) That simple set of gestures that we do is incredibly important. In fact, when we proclaim the gospel in the church, we always do that. Every time we celebrate mass, that happens. It happens so quickly and so automatically, we often don't think about it, and we autopilot it. And that's a shame, because it happens every time, which means there must be a reason for it. And it's amazing what you see from the front of the church. You know, every now and then, you'll look out in the congregation, and you'll see somebody, and the hand gestures can be really amazing. Three circles... (laughs) 
three big gestures of the cross, three X's, all kinds of things happen, and honestly, it's marvelous. Because when one sees that, one knows that somebody is conscious of, we do something here, and I want to try and do it. I just don't know what it is. Um, and so that we're all clear. We don't announce the words of the gospel or receive the words of the gospel until we do this. We sign ourselves on the forehead, we sign ourselves with the cross over the lips, and we sign ourselves with the cross over the heart. Three simple gestures. It doesn't take much to do them, and yet we do it every time. And it begs the question of why. This is not confession, so don't raise your hands, but I will tell by your laughter where we all stand. Does anybody here have trouble paying attention? Does anybody here have trouble listening? Does anybody here find themselves easily distracted? Does anybody here make promises and not keep them just because we forgot what we said? This is us. This is us. So note the first gesture. We sign ourselves on the forehead, and there's a prayer that comes with that. May the words of the gospel remain in my mind. And why? Because all too often the experience of the believer is, I hear the gospel, it comes in one ear, it stops for a cup of coffee, and then it leaves, and I've forgotten it. And it's not that I haven't heard the word, it's I don't retain it. The number of times we'll leave Mass on Sunday, and if the question was, what was the gospel reading, we'd shrug our shoulders and say, you know, I should know this. I was there, I think, but I don't remember it. Um, and so note, this is who we are. And this is also what marks our everyday relationships. We speak to one another, and we're so busy con con composing our response, we miss what the other person says to us. We sit down, and we begin to pray, and we begin composing the grocery list, and so we don't move forward. This is who we are. And so we recognize that even though the Lord is speaking to us, we have trouble paying attention. So, we need help. And so we take advantage of the fact that Christ has given us a key. Where's my friend? Oh, yeah, good. Come up here. Bob Scott, you well trained. Turn around. And so as my young friend here, this is bigger than your head. Note the crucifix. Note the cross in my hand. But we sign ourselves with the cross because we recognize I need help paying attention. I need help receiving and retaining the word. So I take advantage of the key to unlock myself. Note how powerful that is. Because unless you help me, Lord, I will have trouble focusing even on you. Next, we sign ourselves on our lips. 
And there's a prayer that goes with that too. May the words of the gospel speak through me. And again, we pause because isn't it amazing how much easier it is to complain than it is to say something positive? Isn't it amazing how easy it is to give the convenient lie than even to speak a small truth? The negative word, the dishonest word, the harsh word, the wrong word is the easy word. The good word, that's hard. That requires a bit of risk. And so once again, we take advantage of the key. I promise it won't hurt again. And we turn the key by the words of the, may the words of the gospel speak through me. Lord, by the power of your cross, unlock my ability to speak the good word. And why? Because the word that we receive in the gospel isn't just for us to think about, it's for us to communicate and share. And then there's that third gesture right over the heart. This is the hard one. May the words of the gospel change my heart. Because the simple fact of the matter is, my friend, see all these people out there? As much as they say that change is good, none of them likes change. What we really want is for everybody else to change. What we really want is the world to change. Basically, what I say to the world is, if you were only different, I'd be fine. In other words, I'm not changing for anybody. And yet, the very essence of love is that I am willing to change for you. And we recognize that the gospel comes to us for the sake of changing us for the better. But we don't like to change for anybody. And so once again, we need the key to unlock our hearts so that they're willing to change. You go back to mom again. You keep getting applause. Man. But you know, note how simple that is and yet how important that is. And yet it often happens without us even thinking about it. And yet every time we engage the gospel, the church is saying it's not free. Not meaning that we have to open our wallets and pay, but we have to pay something different. We have to pay the price of attention. We have to pay the price of being willing to communicate. We have to be willing to pay the price of changing. The cost of receiving the gospel is opening ourselves to it. And that having been said then, we still have to deal with the gospel that we've just heard. This marvelous passage that comes from the, the middle of the gospel of St. Mark. And what happens here now is Jesus has been speaking to the people in general. And at this point in chapter eight of his gospel, he changes. And instead of speaking to everybody, he's speaking to those who have been following him. 
And so note how now this involves us very directly. The Lord turns to those who have been with him, who have been following him, who have heard his teaching, and he says, I have something to say to you. This is not a teaching for those who don't know me. This is not a teaching for those who have never heard about me. This is not a teaching to the merely curious. It's for you who have been with me. Boy, everything sounds different when we recognize that, doesn't it? And so the Lord turns to those who have been with him, and he begins by asking them a series of questions. First, he says, look, you who've been with me, you have your lives, you have your families, you're out in the world, you hear things, you see things, and people have all kinds of things that they're saying about me and that they're thinking about me. What are you hearing? What does the world out there say about me? This is fascinating because Jesus is not asking his disciples to own any of these opinions, just to repeat them. And so there are many answers because out in the world that doesn't know Jesus, there are many different opinions about who he is. And they're all wrong. Because knowledge of Jesus doesn't come from the world that doesn't know him. We often forget that. We often forget that because we have a tendency, if somebody is well-spoken, to assume he must be correct. But note, the world doesn't know Jesus. So why would it get him right? And so Jesus says, what are you hearing from those who don't know me? And so the disciples begin giving this long list of answers. Well, you're like one of the prophets. You're John the Baptist. You're Jeremiah. You're a teacher. You're this. You're that. You're many things. And there might be a touch of truth in all of these answers, but there's not the truth in any of these answers. Because none of this is spoken from knowledge of Jesus. It's all mere opinion. It's all mere guesswork. But the apostles have no trouble giving answers because it's easy to repeat what somebody else says. So having done that, Jesus now asks a second question. Now he says, but you guys, you've been with me for a couple years now. You've heard my teaching. You've seen what I've done. You've eaten with me, traveled with me. You've stayed with me. You have experience of me. You know me. Who am I to you? What do you say about me? And the remarkable thing here is that with the first question, there were many answers. And with this question, there's only one. Because only one guy is speaking up. Isn't that wild? 
You can almost see as Jesus asks the question, the 12 apostles are standing there hoping somebody else speaks first. You know, and, and they're all waiting, you know? And I was like, if what he says is the right answer, I'm going to say, that's what I was going to say. And if what he gives is the wrong answer, if Jesus rejects it, then I know what not to say. And so nobody is coming forward until Peter speaks. And Peter is bold, he's concise, he's direct. He says, you are the Christ. And you can just imagine all the other 11 guys thinking, oh, thank God for Peter. <laughs> is he right? Is Peter correct? Well, you're not sure. Is Peter correct? Let's be careful on this. You are better off not being sure. Because no, no one's surprising here. On the one hand, Peter is dead on target. Jesus is the Christ. But amazingly, what does Jesus say? Don't you tell anybody that. And we sit there and say, well, like, if that's the right answer, why should he not share it? And that's because knowledge of Jesus doesn't come from us either. We forget that. So note what happens next. Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, and then Jesus says, shut up about that. And then he says, let me tell you who I am. That's the amazing part of this story, is after asking what the world says, asking af after asking what the disciples say, then Jesus speaks for himself about himself. And so Jesus says, now let me tell you who I am. The Son of Man will be rejected. He will be arrested. He will be condemned. He will be put to death, and he will rise again on the third day. This is exactly who I am. And that's not the answer anybody was ready for. And again, imagine the 12 apostles listening to Jesus say this. And they're hearing, reject it arrested, suffering, condemned, put to death. They've already stopped listening before we got to rising. And everybody has difficulty with this. And again, nobody says a thing until Peter speaks up. You got to love St. Peter. Because if St. Peter has an issue, at least he lets it be known. And so he comes to the Lord and basically says, Lord, as far as plans go, that's really not a good one. And note what the scripture says. Jesus spoke this openly. Peter comes to him and says, Jesus, you've got to be careful with that stuff. I know when you're exaggerating. They don't. If you keep speaking like that, Someone's going to take you seriously. Well, the amazing thing is Jesus is speaking seriously. But note, 
Peter responds to the Lord out of a certain concern for him. And so he says, let that not happen to you. You should protect yourself. You should take care of yourself. You should save yourself. You should watch out for yourself. Note, Peter is concerned for Jesus. Peter is protective of Jesus. Peter's intentions are good. Now, most of us, except for my young friend back there, have been alive long enough to know where good intentions lead. And so imagine the shock on Peter's face when Jesus turns and looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. What a surprisingly harsh statement that is. In fact, the only other person Jesus says that to is Satan himself. Note how strong this critique from Jesus is to St. Peter. This is not gentle at all. This is sharp. This is stinging. This is cutting. And Peter is looking at Jesus like, why would you say that to me? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you had the right words just a minute ago. I am the Christ. But you don't know what those words mean. That's why he told him, don't share this with anybody. You have the right words, but you're missing the right spirit. You do not think as God does, you think as human beings do. What a remarkable statement. We need more than the right words. We need the right words and the right spirit to know Jesus. And this is what Jesus is trying to surface here. With this difficult word of his cross and his suffering. Note what Jesus is saying. Who am I? What do I say about myself? I don't say I'm a prophet. I don't say I'm a teacher. I don't say I'm the guy who's going to make everything better. I'm the one who's going to the cross. This is who I am. And the key to knowing me is this the cross. And without this, you don't know me. Without this, you can't understand me. You can name me however you will name me, but if you don't include this, you don't know me at all. What a remarkable moment this is. And so Jesus turns to Peter and he confronts him with the fact that the spirit of the world is allergic to the word of the cross. And why? The spirit of the world says, advance yourself, assert yourself, indulge yourself, please yourself, satisfy yourself. Spirit of the world says, me first. 
the spirit of the world says, take care of your own first. The spirit of the world says, the center of the universe, that would be me. But the spirit of Jesus Christ is a spirit of self-denial, of self-sacrifice. Note how different that is. And when one has that a self-asserting spirit of the world living at the top of the heart, the last thing that one can accept is the cross. What a remarkable moment this is then. And so Jesus is saying, it's one thing to call me the Christ, but if your idea of the Christ is some self-asserting king who simply wins a military or political victory over his opponents, oh, you've got me wrong. If your idea of the Christ is some kind of savior, who makes everything better at no cost to himself, you've got me wrong. If, on the other hand, your understanding of salvation is the Savior, pays a price that costs him everything, then you've got me right. Note the difference. Note the difference. And this happens at this moment, not by accident. Jesus brings St. Peter and the other 12 disciples to this point, the other 11 disciples, to exactly this moment. And he brings the other 11 along because he knows it's going to be Peter who gets them there. This is not a teaching that Jesus gives at the beginning of their relationship with him. He called St. Peter to follow him two years earlier. So Peter has been with him for a while. And Jesus is now saying, you've been following me. And that's been real. It hasn't been false. It hasn't been fake. But I want to bring you to a point of greater depth. And in order to get you there, we've got to get past your fear of this, the word of the cross, because this is where we're going. And so turning to St. Peter and saying that, Jesus then turns to everybody and he lays out before them what has long been recognized as the great summary of what it is to follow Jesus Christ. Now again, think about this for a minute. The Catholic tradition is 2,000 years old, right? That's long and complicated. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could reduce it all to a single sentence? That would be nice. We could memorize that. We could understand that. We could work with that. It would be not so complicated. We can. And Jesus gives us that sentence right here. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. 
from the words of Jesus Christ, this is what it is to be his disciple. On the one hand, anybody could memorize that. On the other hand, we're probably all sitting there saying, Lord, I'd like another sentence. And so let's just parse that out for a minute. If you really desire to follow me, know what Jesus is saying to St. Peter and to all the others. You've been following me to a certain degree. Now he's saying, do you really want this? Yes or no? Do you really want to follow me? Do you really want to unite yourself to me? Do you really want to be with me? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then there are some things that have to happen. And note how this changes how we understand a lot of the gospel. Remember when we first learned about St. Peter when we're young in religious education? They're by the sea, they're mending their nets, and Jesus comes and says, follow me. And what do they do? They follow him. And now Jesus is saying, well, we skipped a couple steps there. And he's saying that not because that was illegitimate at the beginning, but because there's a second call after the first call. The first call is come and follow me. The second call is now that you've been following me, now that you know me and you know something about what it is to be with me, how serious are you? And if the answer is, Lord, I'm serious, then let's look at what comes next. And now the Lord speaks in a way, again, that undercuts something that we grow up hearing, which is another dangerous oversimplification. How many of us have heard that expression, pick up your cross and follow Jesus? That's another common Christian expression, isn't it? Notice Jesus doesn't say that here. He doesn't say, if you would be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me because you'll get it wrong. There's another step. If you would be my disciple, it's not pick up your cross, it's deny yourself. Then pick up your cross and then follow me. What an interesting sequence that is. It's not as simple as do you wanna follow me then follow me. And why does the Lord do that? He's saying, if you want to come into the depth of a relationship with me, then there are certain steps that are required. And the most essential step is the step of self-denial. This is why when he turns to Peter, he says exactly what he says. Note what Jesus says to Peter and what he doesn't say to him. He doesn't say, get away from me, Satan. He doesn't say, leave me, Satan. He doesn't say, tempting as it may have been, go to hell, Satan. He says, get behind me, 
Satan. Why would he say that? Because Satan likes to lead. And a disciple's place is to follow. Jesus isn't casting Peter away. He's not rejecting Peter. He's reminding Peter where he belongs. Get behind me where the disciple belongs. Peter, in his good intentions, was trying to lead Jesus, was trying to tell Jesus where to go, was trying to guide the Lord. We Christians struggle with this all the time. We try to take the gospel and press it into the service of our agendas, our causes, our purposes. But Jesus doesn't come for that. He comes to lead us. And so Jesus turns to Peter and says, your place is behind me. And note what he's also saying. The very essence of being a disciple the very essence of following is to let somebody else lead. I can only do that if I deny myself. To let somebody else lead, I have to let somebody else set the pace. I can't do that. To let somebody else lead, I have to let somebody else choose the direction. I can't do that or I'm not following. Note how important self-denial is. If I can't deny myself, I can't begin to follow. With all due respect to Mr. Sinatra, this is why the national anthem of hell is, I did it my way. And so Jesus turns to Peter and says, you can't be in charge if you're going to follow me. You can't be in complete control if you're gonna follow me. You don't get to set the pace. You don't get to choose the direction. I do that, and you come with me. The minute you try to drag me along with you, we're off course. It's a remarkably simple idea but a very difficult one to live according to and to conform to. And note what Jesus says, that's the key piece with regard then to picking up my cross and following him. If I'm too quick to pick up the cross, I'm gonna run off on my own. If I'm too quick to say yes, I'm going to stumble off on the wrong path. But if I say yes in a way that says, Lord, I really want you to lead me, and I really do trust you, then I am ready to follow you. And about this issue of the cross, notice what the Lord says, let him deny himself and let him pick up not the cross, but his or her cross. We don't reflect on this enough either, that you have a cross that's not mine, and I have a cross that's not yours. 
And let's pause on that for a minute. One of the things that St. Louis de Montfort loved about reflecting on Jesus was this. Jesus is a carpenter, right? Which means he knows a thing or two about working with wood, correct? Or he wouldn't be much of a carpenter. And so note that issue of your cross or my cross. That cross shaped by one who knows what he's doing with wood, sized perfectly for you, not too heavy for you, where it would be an unreasonable burden, nor too light for you where you wouldn't notice it, but balanced perfectly for you, not too awkward for you to carry, but balanced perfectly for you to carry your cross, not somebody else's cross. And this, too, is part of what self-denial is important for. Because we have this tendency to compare ourselves with others, don't we? Oh, I wish I had it as easy as he or she does, without knowing the reality of what that person is going through. I wish it was different for me. And that unwillingness to accept what the Lord is pleased to give me. Because this is the cross that will shape me for holiness, not somebody else's. And the cross that he measures out for me is the cross that I can carry to my profit as opposed to something else. But when I want to lay it down in the favor of something else, what I'm doing is I'm rejecting him and his work and his plan, and I am no longer following him. It's a natural tendency. It's a natural temptation. It's a natural struggle. But note that importance. If you would follow me, Deny yourself so that I can actually lead you. Deny yourself so that I can actually give you the cross that will help you. And then receive it by trusting me that this will be the one that is good for you. And that having been said, art, Catholic art, is very instructive. And in many of our parishes, there's artwork for the Stations of the Cross, isn't there? When you get the chance, it is always helpful when you see a depiction of the Stations of the Cross, find station number two, the station of Jesus taking up his cross or Jesus receiving his cross, however it's named. Because there's something remarkable about the way Catholic art depicts that scene. The world around us would see this. The executioners come out with the cross and they impose it. They place it on Jesus. And in worldly terms, all that is is a burden. It's hardship. It's pain. It's suffering. It's nothing else. 
But what really good art shows is something different. It shows the soldiers and the executioners coming out with the cross, and it's heavy and it's large. But Jesus is typically shown not looking at them, but looking up toward heaven. And his hands are shown as reaching up. And he's shown as receiving the cross not from the world, but from his Father, from heaven. As that trust which is settled on his shoulders, that he carries not merely as a burden, but as that which will bring life to us. Note the difference. Note the difference. And when the Lord says, pick up your cross, what he doesn't mean is shoulder the merely unpleasant burden I have decided to drop upon you. That's what our bad piety sometimes reduces it to. Rather, what he is saying is stretch out your hands and receive it from me. Don't receive it from circumstances. Circumstances are there. You know, circumstances will burden you. Difficulties will burden you. The world will impose all kinds of pain and inconvenience upon you. That is the truth. But within all of that, I have something for you. Make sure you receive that. That's what you carry. You don't merely carry the burden. You don't merely carry the inconvenience. You carry the fact that within all of this, there is something that I give you that shapes you for the better. Embrace that. Carry that with me. And then you follow me. And why? Because the Lord is very, very clear. I am going someplace. And if you are following me, guess what? You're going there too. And where do I go? I am going to Calvary. And my disciple comes with me. But that's not to the place of pain, merely. That's not the place of defeat, merely. That's the place of self-giving. And it's the place of victorious self-giving. If you come with me and let me lead you. Note how wonderful that is when we understand it. But I'm going somewhere, the Lord says. The ultimate destination is heaven. The ultimate destination is the resurrection. But this is the way. It's the only way I walk. Because the Lord chooses this way not because he's a victim of circumstances. He chooses this way because this is what saves us. And the simple fact of the matter is, whether we believe in Jesus or not, the cross comes. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, suffering comes. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, hardship comes. That's the truth. Everybody gets that. I wish I could say something different, but that's just not true. Note the difference. The Lord is saying, 
But you who are with me get more than hardship, get more than difficulty, get more than sorrow, get more than sadness because I am with you in all of those things. Bear those things with me and they will lead you to life. Leave me behind and you've got nothing. Well, bear them with me and you have everything. Tomorrow evening, we'll reflect at greater length on this movement of Jesus with the cross. Tomorrow evening, I'm asking all of you to bring your crucifixes and your crosses from your homes here to be blessed. Bring as many as you have, as many as you want. I will bless them all. If you don't have a crucifix in your home, go out and buy one because you need to have one. Um, but when you're doing this, when you're doing this, we do have, I always have rules. When you're doing this, that crucifix that's your family crucifix that's been up on the wall for however many years that you can't even count anymore, take it down, blow the dust off of it, clean it up. And when you're doing that, when you're doing that, take your time. Feel its weight in your hand. Pay attention to what it feels like, whether it's with a washcloth or whatever, to run your hand over the corpus on the cross. Because the simple fact of the matter is, most of us spend most of our time looking at the cross, and we spend very little time physically touching it. And something happens when you hold it that's different from when you look at it. The weight can be surprising. The simple act of closing your hand around the body of Jesus does something. And there may well be a prayer waiting for you, a prayer that doesn't have words. It's still a good prayer. Linger with that. Say that prayer. Feel that prayer. But do that. And then bring your crucifixes with you. If you've, got one of, if you've got a cross or a crucifix that has a history, this has been in our family since our great-great-grandparents, ask yourself, have I told the younger, younger generation about this yet? Because if you haven't, you need to. It's part of who we are. It's how we hand on our faith. But those crosses that you have accumulating in drawers, because we have those as well, fish them out. Bring them along. We will bless them tomorrow. And tomorrow night, we'll talk about what it is to put the cross back up on the wall. Because there's a way of doing that as well that has great profit for us. Um, but this is the great sign, the great symbol of our faith, and we can't reflect upon it enough. And that's also why enthroned upon our altar is this marvelous image. And this is the first time I've brought this out for public veneration. Um, so this is newly acquired. It was hand carved in Poland. And it is the face of the glorious Lord, the man of sorrows, crowned with thorns. 
It's the face of Jesus. As Pilate says at the beginning of the Passion, behold the man. And the Christian tradition has long held that that statement itself, as little as Pilate understood what he was saying, is pregnant with meaning. And it's this, behold him. Look upon him in his suffering, in his woundedness, and see how great the love of God for you really is. Look upon him and follow him into the mystery of his dying for you, and you will know him. You will know him in a way that nothing else can teach you because the cross remains the key, the great secret that unlocks the treasury of the love of Christ. And this image is a marvelous reminder of the truth of that marvelous line from Scripture, let your face shine on us and we will be saved. And we often think of statements like that in the, in the merely positive. And what I mean by that is, Lord, in your unambiguous happiness, Look on me and everything will be great. And when I say look upon me, let me clean myself up first so that you can see me at my best. But when we see the Lord this way, we're reminded that he knows us at our worst. He sees us at our worst. He's experienced the worst we can do to him. And he still looks on us with that invincible and victorious love that saves us. What a remarkable gift that is. Let your face shine on us and we shall be saved. This is the image that I will use to bless you and your families this night. And I will hold it over you to ask his blessing upon you and your families. As I do that, I'll put on a garment called the humeral veil, which means I won't touch the image directly with my hands as I bless you. So that it's quite clear that we're asking the blessing of Christ, not merely my blessing upon you and your families. Please stand. Let us pray together the prayer that Christ himself has given us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And just so that we're clear, It doesn't matter if you're by yourself tonight and you're thinking, the rest of my family isn't here, they're scattered around the country, they just didn't come out of the house. It doesn't matter, this is a family blessing. Wherever they are, 
this will reach. The Lord be with you. And, with your spirit. and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just give me a moment, and I will be right here at the front of the church, and I'll just let you guys to sort yourselves out as you come forward. <laughs>